0: and welcome to the no key show i am no me key const well it sure didn't take long for corporate media and neoliberal politicians to drag the discussion of our future back to the same old same old phony debates
1: by one estimate it could create 2.3 million jobs by 2024 to pay for it all new tax hikes the white house today saying the president has a plan to pay for every dollar He's proposing a way to pay for his proposals over time. Biden says he'll raise taxes on large corporations and the most wealthy, but promises no one making less than $400,000 a year will see their taxes go up. Also on the table, raising the corporate rate from 21 to 28 percent and imposing new penalties on corporations that move jobs overseas.
2: But Mary, you and I know the same reality. A 50-50 Senate and the president expected to face resistance from Republicans on this.
1: He absolutely is, David. Republicans are already pushing back against any attempt to raise taxes. But even some Democrats are voicing concerns about this plan. The bottom line tonight, Washington is gearing up for a
0: bruising fight.
1: David. Mary Bruce.
0: Give me a break. There is so much wrong with this. It, it, it has not even been 100 days. And President Biden is already back to the tired tropes that have been used to strangle government since Ronald Reagan. Biden has a plan to pay for every dollar, has a plan to pay for every dollar, seriously. As if we were taking pennies from our national piggy bank and assuring mama he'd put them all back afterwards. That is just economic nonsense and everybody knows it. For one brief shiny moment, this past year, the United States spent the money it needed To spend, It needed to spend without tying us in political knots with phony budget discussions. But in that clip, you saw Jen Psaki declare an end to that. Now she promises tax hikes to cover every dollar of spending needed to create a green economy, to make sure everyone has access to internet and fix our roads, bridges and mass transit. You're probably thinking, what the hell is wrong with tax hikes, right? What the hell is wrong with taxing the rich and the corporations who should be paying more? Absolutely. But tying those tax hikes to infrastructure spending gives the Republicans a way to attack the spending without sounding like they are against all of the things that everyone loves, like jobs and clean energy and a stronger infrastructure. We have fallen right back into the trap that Republicans set back when Reagan was president. The Republicans attack the things people don't like, taxes, so they could strangle the thing that Republicans don't like, which is the government, and working people, and people of color, and women, and LGBTQ community, and we, we know. So I can't believe that we are back to that. The The big problem here is obviously Joe Biden and his neoliberal buddies who just can't shake off their old ways. They are They have habits from that era, they grew up in that era, and they can't shake it off. And ABC News is not helping. The mainstream media is not helping. ABC introduced this clip by describing, and I am quoting here, quote, Biden's massively ambitious and expensive infrastructure plan, end quote. Not really. However you look at that, it is, well, pretty modest, actually. $2 trillion is 10% of production in the United States in one year. Yeah, you heard me correctly. The plan proposes to spend the equivalent of about a month's worth of U.S. economic production. And of course, that $2 trillion will be spent over many years, eight years, according to the president. So we are talking about spending barely 1% of the the year, barely 1% per year of our total national production on investments to keep us productive in the future. Also brings us jobs, right? It's an investment that also brings immediate jobs. So it's actually paying it back as it goes. Are you listening, ABC? This is good stuff to do massively ambitious and expensive. No, no, not even close. And remember, much of this is spending on work we should have done years ago. But hyping this as massively expensive only serves to pump up the idea of spending way outside the norm. Now, it may be outside the norm of what it has been, but it sure isn't outside of the norm of what it needs to be. The economic fact is that interest rates are currently so low that the government can borrow this money and use it to invest in clean growth, an investment that is likely to pay off far bigger than the $2 trillion we put in. Now, I have not the slightest problem with changing or charging corporations to pay for this since they are going to be major beneficiaries of that growth. But I have a big problem tying the fate of this vitally needed infrastructure investment to whether Republicans and Joe Manchin are willing to tax corporations. The only beneficiary of that strategy, as far as I can see, is ABC News and the rest of corporate media, which seems to be absolutely thrilled to have a fight on Capitol Hill of that good old-fashioned sort between those who want to spend, cue the hissing, and those who want to protect, uh, who want to protect us from the crushing taxes and spending that we'll require which is a standing ovation, of course, right? Cue the hissing, standing ovation. They love the drama. We've seen the show before, and I would like to remind everybody, it ended really, really badly. We don't want to live through 2000 and 2020 together, do we? So what do you say? Let's try something new. This infrastructure plan is part of how we make sure we never do. That is what this is about. So let's reframe, rethink how we have these conversations, because the Republicans, whether or not they're in the middle of this fight or have the power in this fight, have the votes in this fight, have the majority, they're still setting the stage because they still control other arms of our society, including sitting on the boardrooms of the companies that are advertising or own many of these media companies, So let's reframe how we talk about this. We can afford it. It's absolutely nothing in our budget. It's absolutely nothing when it comes to production. And we shouldn't tether it solely to taxing the wealthy, although they should still pay for those those improvements. All right, guys, we have a great show for you today. We are going to be talking about, ooh, talk about money, talk about infrastructure. Just how is systemic racism structured in our society today? Jim Freeman is the author of Rich, thanks to racism. How the ultra wealthy profit from racial injustice. then hmm. Jordan, Zachary, and Simon Roder here today to talk about the news of the day, including the Amazon vote, including the Derek Chauvin trial, and Matt Gates. Oh, oh, Matt Gates. Ooh, that's a fun one. All right, stick around. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Jim Freeman is the author of Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. He's a civil rights lawyer. Uh, he is the director of Social Movement Support Lab at iRise, an initiative at the University of Denver that provides multidisciplinary assistance to communities fighting for racial justice. And he was a, formerly a senior attorney at the Advancement Project, which is a national civil rights organization. All right. All right. Lots here. Uh, Jim, thanks for joining the show. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, all right. I mean, I think to our audience, we would not be surprised that the wealthy, uh, historically, uh, have have profited off of racism in this country, but 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 now we're in this like new woke capitalism uh, phase where where Bill Gates is investing in Africa and uh, rich people have been building water uh, water wells in Africa and you know Mark Zuckerberg talks about you know having a more open immigration platform. So like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. How are they profiting off of racism as we're sitting on this algorithm that ninety percent of white men are watching?
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, the, um, <laughs> the one of the problems is that, and one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that people do think of it as a thing of the past, right? We get lots of great press, or, you know, billionaires get lots of great press about about some of the good things that they do, really don't get much exposure for the things that, you know, maybe aren't so um, beneficial, particularly to communities of color. So, you know, I think you know, this is a really exciting time on one hand, where we have more people than ever that are, really recognizing the urgency to end systemic racism. Um, And I think the movement being built right now can actually finally do that. But I wrote the book because there's very little understanding of what and who stands in the way of that. And, you know, in particular, I want people to understand that the biggest reason, you know, there's lots of reasons why systemic racism exists, but the biggest reason why it persists is that these dynamics, which are so devastating for so many people of color are actually still today for a lot of large corporations and Wall Street banks, enormously profitable. And they're the biggest reasons why we still have these policies on the books. And they're also heavily invested in preserving and defending them, which I refer to as as strategic racism.
0: Let's start with one that I think, I mean, because you talk about the laws on the books still. So um, just from the aspect of criminal justice, let's just like start in that realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, you know, there's a for prison uh, profit, in, you know, industrial complex. There's a non, you know, there's a state prison industrial complex. Uh, there's the money around uh, what the criminal justice system would get people uh, in prison and what happens afterwards. But like, let's look at like the, the, the Koch brothers industrial complex aside, given that I think there's only one Koch brother left um, involved in it. They're all about prison reform now. So can we, can we just like how, what's their involved? Let's just start with the, the, the big you know, boogeyman that we're all aware of.
2: Yeah, I mean, so um, it's true that they have been very um, uh, 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 intentional about getting some of their um, work on criminal justice. Um, covered in the media in recent years. And you know it's true that they have done some things that align with the priorities of the racial justice movement. Um, but if you really examine the types of things that they're supporting, um, and maybe more importantly, the types of things they aren't supporting, um, what they're actually putting forward are things that, that directly benefit themselves, right? That reduce the size of the criminal justice system, that privatize the criminal justice system in ways that they can benefit directly. Um, what they're not doing is putting their considerable resources and political clout um, in support of efforts to repair the harm caused by four decades of mass incarceration. They're not putting their effort um, and their money to, to work in addressing the over-policing of communities of color. Um, and so, and, and they're not really, you know, addressing you know, the fundamental injustices that are taking place every day um, or putting efforts into you know, real efforts to you know, prevention efforts and other alternatives to the mass criminalization incarceration system um, that are being supported and lifted up by, by the racial justice movement. They're not doing those things um, because you know, I think it's pretty clear that they don't benefit them directly. I mean, that's been a consistent theme of all of their advocacy over the years, and I don't think that's any different now, even, that they've, even though they've stepped their toe into this realm.
0: Okay, so can you help us understand the ecosystem of of who in in present day uh, is benefiting from from the systemic racism that has you know has has been built up uh, to this moment?
2: Yeah, I mean, so you know, you mentioned the Koch brothers. Um, certainly talk a lot about them, um, or the Koch brother Charles Koch. Um, talk a lot about them in the book. Um, we talk a lot about Alec in the book. Um, uh, and you know the the other forms in which ultra wealthy folks have sort of organized themselves politically, um, and and really in the way we talk about criminal justice, we talk about immigration enforcement, we talk about education, education inequity, and how those folks have been um, deeply involved in um, in creating and like I said preserving the inequities that exist. The full answer of why they do that is is pretty long, and you know I, I spilled a lot of ink on it, but the short answer is because all those things are economically advantageous for them, right? I I refer to them as racism profiteers because like you say, they can make money off of mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex. They make money off of immigrant detention. They make money off of school privatization. But they also benefit when they pay less in taxes, when we as a a society choose to dehumanize people rather than meeting their basic human needs. And it's also, you know, these dynamics of systemic racism are extremely effective at controlling us, at dividing us, at causing us not to recognize our, our common interests. And so it really helps them maintain their political and economic power.
0: How about Bill Gates?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I spent, you know, a lot of time um, talking about Bill Gates in the book um, and, you know, in in one way, in in one case, I I contrast him with with Charles Koch, right, because they have very different public perceptions. But if you look at education, for example, um, Bill Gates has been very visible um, about investing hundreds of millions of dollars into charter schools and the school privatization movement. Uh, The Koch brothers have not. Um, Their investments over the years have been largely under the radar. But if you actually break down where that money is going from from the Gates Foundation and from the Koch brothers, in many cases, it's going to the exact same organizations and certainly going to the same ecosystem of organizations. So, you know, while I think the motivations behind those efforts um, are different and the end game um, for those folks is different, the fact is that they're both... Um, advancing this, this movement that has been deeply, deeply harmful for many communities of color across the U.S.
0: When you say organizations, can you name a few?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, one thing, you know, in, in the book, um, I actually break down, you know, what just 10 billionaires, including Bill Gates, including Charles Koch, and some others, Mark Zuckerberg, um, the Waltons, um, break down just what 10 of these folks, um, how they've invested in 50 organizations, um, that have been very active in uh, in promoting school privatization. So that includes some large charter school networks like the KIPP schools. It includes some advocacy organizations like, you know, Teach for America and Democrats for Education Reform and, and places like that, and includes some, you know, charter school advocacy networks. Um, I just look at 50, and those 10 sources investing in those 50 organizations um, resulted in $3.2 billion that we could track um, and so what they've basically done is they've created, this is, you know, very much a billionaire led effort. They like to say that this is being called for by, by folks in those communities. Um, but the, none of that would have existed without, you know, that, that $3.2 billion plus all the other money that they've put in other organizations, plus all the money that other billionaires have put in. Um, it's really, you know, a, you know, uh, sort of the ultimate, um, AstroTurf type effort. Yeah. It's like education, imperialism. Um, exactly.
0: It, it, on, on that hand, I mean, like, wow, they spent all this money and uh, and and clearly this is during the Obama years in particular where Arnie Duncan, uh, secretary of education. I mean, there was there was a big push for uh, school privatization, charter schools um, and war with with teachers unions. But that seems like that. that that's like, you know, that conversation is hopefully done on the Democratic Party. You know, even Joe Biden has sort of signaled that. Uh, doesn't mean that charter schools don't exist but those the, the it seems like the line has at least in the public narrative on the in the democratic party has has been drawn um it no longer Looks cool to be lining up with charter schools. People like Cory Booker are are turning their back supposedly on charter schools, who were you know big parts of these these propaganda movies like Waiting for Superman. Um, Mark Zuckerberg uh, embarrassed himself with all the money he put into the New York public school or excuse me, the New York school system, I should say, not the public school system. Um, so you know, great that you spent all this money, but like, was it really that effective? And are they still doing it given that the discourse has shifted?
2: Yeah, I, I guess I'm not as um, maybe as convinced as you are that the Democratic Party has moved on from this. I mean, certainly there have been some high-profile individuals who've distanced themselves. Not
0: them, by so. choice. Let me just be very clear. <laughs> yes, this is not much. by choice. This is. <laughs> yes,
2: it was. There was there was a, a a movement that's been built up in opposition to it because they had to to defend um, schools. Um, and, but, you know, if you actually track the money, there's still a lot of money going into these organizations and, you know, particularly at the state and local levels, like these dynamics are still happening. And what we've done is we've, we've sort of set the Titanic in motion. Um, we've created this thoroughly unequal sort of competition if you will, between charter schools and public schools. Um, and so we've given so many advantages to charter schools in that fight that a lot of this stuff is, is now on autopilot. And so, if we don't do something to intervene—not just say, you know, we're not going to support this anymore—but if we don't take active efforts to intervene, then there's going to be more public schools closing down and more charter schools that that pop up to take their place. Um, and and you know, when you really break that down, and particularly when you look at all the money going into it, um, that's an issue that threatens, you know, the education of virtually every child in America. So you know, everybody has a dog in that fight, and we're still seeing some very troubling things like. You know these sort of voucher or voucher-like programs. You know the bills being advanced in in Florida, for example, um, and being supported by the governor there. Um, th- this is very serious stuff for anybody who cares about their public schools.
0: Um, simultaneously, it's also like as a New Yorker, we're very familiar with this. There, are many of these charter school uh, models, not all of them, are tethered to like real estate. It's 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 like real estate investments. So I mean, is this just? i I guess i don't understand why someone like uh bill gates cares that much about charter schools or was it just like someone sold him the idea he's into it you know 10 years ago obama called him up and like now he's like okay it's just one of my projects are they are they conscious of 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 just how complicated and how much people are making money off of the charter school system and how much it's dividing people I, I, i can't imagine that they're that clueless
2: yeah i um, <laughs> um I wish I could tell you i mean ultimately that's that's a question we need to ask of those folks um, far more directly and far more often. I mean you know even somebody who like me who's sort of involved in these fights on the day to day basis, I didn't fully understand how many ways there were to make money off of this system until really started breaking it down and some of this stuff to be honest with you, I still don't understand like these real estate swaps and transactions and complicated things some of this stuff is is really wild but you know, there's a reason why all the, you know, the large um, investment banks on Wall Street, why they all have, you know, school privatization projects, right? Because they are, um, they do understand this stuff. And they have been putting a lot of effort into thinking through and, you know, I I think, you know, on one hand, there's the charter school stuff. On the other hand, there's the school voucher stuff, the school voucher stuff, those ideas have been been around since the 1950s and Milton Friedman. Right, and and there were folks who were just waiting for the opportunity um, to implement that stuff at scale. Um, I think for them, the charter school movement, like the the inroads that folks like Bill Gates and others were able to make, that was um, their sort of entry point into into advancing the, the the voucher agenda. So, you know, I think you know, I think Charles Koch's motivations are very, like I said, very different than Bill Gates. Um, but when they're both part of the same ecosystem, you know. They, they wind up causing really sort of calamitous effects.
0: Um, how about technology? I mean, I, I think it's really fascinating right now. Uh, we're finally, we're beginning to have this conversation about the tech sector, uh, partly because of what happened on January 6th, about just how dangerous um, big tech uh, is and unregulated they are and, and and conscious they are about their role in, Pushing forward extreme right white nationalist agendas while simultaneously not giving equal opportunities, or the algorithms aren't necessarily built for, uh, you know, minority voices, women, the left. Right. Let's <laughs> I mean, just be clear. Um, I, you know, it, it's it's shocking to me how conscious they are, and why why there's really no regulation or or no. I mean, given that all eyes are on them, that there there's very little effort to address these issues. Um, is it just because of profit or is there some sort of, do, do you get a sense that there's like a more uh, nefarious motive?
2: Well, you know, it's not like we've ever done a good job of calling this stuff out for any other, you know, any other set of industries or corporations, right? So Fair enough. The, the um, and, and tech, you know, I, I think it has been a, you know, particularly in the immigrant justice movement, Um, Some folks have done a really good job in recent years of, you know, of, of identifying some of the Silicon Valley, you know, corporations that have huge contracts with ICE, for example, um, and how they're, you know, very directly profiting from, um, you know, really deep human suffering. Um, You know, I, um, I don't know that I, I ascribe any, you know, anything else to it other than the fact that we have allowed Um, you know, the largest and most politically powerful and politically active forces in our society to get away with um, either um, benefiting directly, you know, often working secretively behind the scenes, but, but still benefiting directly, or, you know, when they get called out for it, to not actually join the effort to undo what they've done, But just to sort of sit it out and stay neutral, while in many cases still taking actions behind the scenes that um, that benefit their interests and and prevent these types of things from being addressed.
0: Is there a sense that there are some of these these billionaires are actually racist, or is it just money, or both, or blindness to race when it comes to money, blinding them? Um, I mean, how much of it is? Do you have a sense of like? Are there people who actually have uh, real ideological perspectives that are of white supremacy?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, they 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 might be racist. They might not. They might be like Donald Trump said, the least racist people in America. What you know, what's very clear is that is that you know they've benefited, right? And so the way I look at it is, you know, if I burn down my neighbor's house. You know, of course, it matters whether it was done out of negligence or done out of malice, right? But at the end of the day, they still don't have a house because of me, and so either way, it's my responsibility to fix the damage that I've done to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And I think it's the same with racial justice, right? We all have a responsibility to stop aiding and abetting systemic racism. We all have a responsibility to address whatever racial blind spots we have and repair whatever harm we've caused, whether it was well-intentioned or not. That's the only way, you know, we can create a truly just and equitable country. And so you know, when it comes to issues of systemic racism, many of the individuals who caused the most harm have also been extremely effective at deflecting blame and avoiding responsibility. And the, the rest of us collectively have allowed our attention to be diverted from the most important questions that need to be asked about any social policy. One, who's harmed and two, who benefits. Um, and the fact is that, you know, they these folks have undoubtedly harmed millions of people in ways that have been, like I say, undoubtedly beneficial for themselves. And they need to be held accountable for that, regardless of what their stated intent has been.
0: And I ask this because, you know, on, on the spectrum, we have people who do clearly have some sort of racial motivation or or white supremacy motivation, like a Peter Thiel, for instance, um, driving the conversation, driving the the ecosystem so that, it, you know, maybe it gives cover to a, Mike, a Mark Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates or, or, or even the Koch brothers. But just like the national narrative, when the when you know the political spectrum, anytime we have a debate in Washington over anything, you know the far right shifts the narrative in a direction that suddenly we're talking about how do we pay for an infrastructure bill that we can definitely pay for um, when the Democrats control you know all three branches of government uh, or at least uh, two branches. Um, but the same thing with like, like this sector. Is, 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 it, is it a Peter Thiel that's driving the conversation and then suddenly that's what makes the charter schools more uh, digestible during an Obama era?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the, like, for example, in the immigration debate, um, and if you look at some of the folks who, you know, who fund those, those efforts, like there are clearly some folks in there who you know, have been very active in funding anti-immigrant organizations. And I, I can't tell you exactly how they feel about immigrants, but I can tell you where they put their money and what the impact has had. But but it's it's difficult sometimes to parse this stuff out because the charter school movement um, has been the the subject of a multibillion dollar public relations campaign to convince people that it is actually a racial justice effort. Right. They've recruited um, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of very well-meaning people who think that what they're doing is advancing racial justice. Um, And in many cases, as individuals, they may be, but when you look at it systemically and globally and the impact that this is having on existing systems and the trauma that it's inflicting on people whose schools are closed and who have to transfer or who get pushed out of the the lousy charter school um, that's unregulated or, you know, all these different types of dynamics that happen, So we have to be able to interrogate those systems as well. um, And how, you know, it's not enough, you know, we can't just look at, you know, for, you know, a lot of those fights, for example, where, you know, there's efforts to expand the number of charter schools, they put a bunch of money into commercials with black and brown kids, you know, in school uniforms, smiling faces, um, talking about their great charter schools, when in actuality, it was, you know, billionaires funding those commercials, who don't even live in that state, right, they're advancing an agenda. So. Um, I think we need to be much more diligent about sussing all of these dynamics out, not only in the systems that we that I've been talking about today, but really across the spectrum and healthcare, employment, etc. Uh, because you know this stuff really exists in all of those in all those spheres.
0: Is there a sphere um, that we're not paying enough attention to right now, in which uh, some of these billionaires are deeply invested and you know are? Uh, Maybe it hasn't it hasn't made it into the national conversation yet. Like, what's their next investment? What's the next thing on their on their list? You know, if if we were to go back to like 2004 uh, Bush years when he was for charter schools, okay, that was a Republican thing. But um, but we, who would have ever thought that that Obama Democrats would be suddenly advocating?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, one thing about that sector is their their very adaptable. Um, you know, when you think about criminal justice, um, they were able to figure out how to profit directly from mass incarceration. Um, and then once the movement reached a point where, you know, they were able to sort of put some checks on that, um, they figured out a way to profit from the alternative that was being put forward, which is what we we're often call the treatment industrial complex, right? And so... Um, and, and in education too, like you almost have to, you almost have to sit back and admire, <laughs> in some ways, the the ingenuity that it takes um, to profit in so many different ways off of this system. So it's not just, you know, like you say, profiting off of the real estate deals. It's profiting off of the standardized tests. Um, it's profiting off of the privatization of all of these functions that you know, like janitorial services and legal services and, you know, economic and financial accountancy services for school districts. They're profiting off of that. And sort of on down the line, there's, you know, there's a long list of of things that I put forward in the book of of very active things that are happening. Um, And so, you know, one thing they are very consistent on um, is, is what I call the doctrine of corporate greed, right? Where, Um, This is probably the most, you know, dominant force in politics. It has been for decades. It totally holds sway over the Republican Party and much of the Democratic Party. And it's been very consistent. You know, they are looking to reduce their own taxes. They're looking to reduce um, public services for low-income working class and middle-class families. They're looking to reduce the minimum wage. They're looking for expanded markets um, that can be privatized and that they can profit off of. And they're looking to reduce regulations. They're looking to you know, um, fight labor unions, um, that's all very, very consistent. And so what they, what they're really, um, been very, very good at is identifying ways in which they can, um, when they can, can profit off of, um, uh, any any type of, of opportunity, regardless of who it hurts,
0: man, you're doing a, a deep dive here. Um, Okay so so now that you've put together this information you you follow the money you have a sense of 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 where they're they're investing um intention or not uh what can people do about it i mean i think fundamentally many people on the left have a sense that billionaires are not doing it for, out of the kindness of their heart and that our systemic inequality uh and racism is is based in economics but like now what where where do we go with this
2: yeah, I mean, so the, um, you know, on the three issues that I talked about um, in the book, criminal justice, immigration, education, um, put forward in, in, in the book, you know, some solutions, and they're, they're not really that complicated, and they're not mine necessarily either, they're, they're the ones that have been lifted up by the communities who are most directly impacted by these issues, and I, I think that's where the best ideas um, come from, um, and those things are all very, very doable, and um, the, the problem is, though, that, you know, the the power of organized wealth is extremely formidable and there's really only one effective counterweight to it, and that's the power of organized people. So the two things I talk about in the book in particular um, are one. Um, you know, I ask folks to, to really support grassroots um, racial justice organizations, however they can. Um, there's hundreds of them around the country who are really leading the way on these issues, but, but they need more support. You know, certainly that's financial support, but they also need people to dedicate their, their time, their energy, their skills. And then the second thing I talk about is, you know, even if you don't have one of those organizations in your, in your community, um, um, I suggest creating what I call community equity assemblies. Um, in every community in the U.S. that struggles with equity issues, which is to say every community in the U.S. And so, you know, these can just be places where people who are interested in these issues, um, who want to do something, who want to learn more, can just come together, you know, informally at first um, and, and just engage with, with folks in their community about what's going on and, and how we, they might be able to address it. Um, like I said, these don't need to be formal. These don't need to be large. Like there's small groups of people uh, making, you know, huge impactful changes all across the U S but over time, if we can build these things and, you know, bring more people in to these conversations, um, then I think, you know, then, like I say, we can create an effective counterweight to all of these very troubling dynamics. I love that idea. That's
0: great. Uh, Jim Freeman, fascinating, really. Thank you for doing this work. Um, great time to to read it uh go check out his book it's called rich rich thanks to racism how the ultra wealthy profit from racial justice i'll say that one more time rich thanks to racism how the ultra wealthy profit from racial justice jim freeman thank you for joining us and go check out his book go uh, buy it from a a good independent bookstore somewhere that's not amazon because you don't want to feed that guy more money right now
2: (laughs) thank you so much for having me
0: thank you All right, we'll be back right after the break. All right, you've heard me say it. Sunset Lake CBD, it is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products, and I mean craft, like good products, directly from their farm, their independent farm, to your door. Uh, Sunset Lake CBD has something for everybody. They offer tinctures, gummies, salves, coffee, fudge, all designed to help with stress, aches, and pains, and it has helped me with all three of those. Uh, It was originally a dairy farm for the Ben & Jerry's, like the Ben & Jerry's Dairy Farm in Vermont, and they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp. Uh, When you are a customer of Sunset Lake CBD, you are supporting sustainable agriculture that enhances rural communities that our government does not seem to be caring about, (laughs) and it creates meaningful employment in those communities. Their minimum wage is... $15 an hour, Kristen Cinema, pay attention to that. Uh, Employees at the company, they they own the majority of the company and they support independent media like our show, The Nomi Key Show and The David Pakman Show and The Majority Report. That's pretty cool, right? Like they're a progressive company and they're community-based and they're invested in their community and their employees own a majority of the community and then they invest in shows like ours. I'm a, a big fan. I've talked about this. I have The Tincture that I use every night last night I had to go uh to the airport very late at night to pick somebody up and I suddenly could not go to sleep and so I put some of the tincture into my tea into my little sleepy tea and I had a deep 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 sleep um Dorsey I know you use the products we are big fans of the products oh look at there's Dorsey it's camera day for Dorsey I'm glad that you uh
3: I have to do it now. I did it last time, so I have to keep doing
0: it. <laughs> you're, you're pleasing my mother. My mother is very excited to see you on camera now. Where is Dorsey? I want to see his face. <laughs>
3: oh, you're welcome. Meet you, Mom.
0: <laughs> so Dorsey, I know, I mean, we both, okay. I, I have to, I, this weekend, I, Joshua Con Russell, who's, um you know, part of our show, we got to hang out. It was really fun. We went on a hike and, Somehow we started talking about CBD, and I said, "No, I didn't like CBD before. I, I tried it a few times. It was really expensive. It didn't work." But I really like Sunset Lake CBD, and he's like, "Wait, you actually use it?" Because <laughs> he watches the show. I said. Yes, I'm not making up the ads as I'm saying this. I like, I like love it. And then you and I will just independently off air talk about. Oh, what are you using right now? What did you use it for? So what yeah, are you using I mean, right now? it's.
3: I mean, I'm just I'm on the gummies now, and also uh, since it's legal in New York now, I guess I could talk about it. Uh, since I <laughs> instead of saying yesterday. other stuff, I could be like, you know, hey, you know, uh, when I smoke weed, <laughs> I put the the keef on there, the CBD keef to just kind of like. Some of the strains we get are they give me a little anxiety and, you know, it's a little too much for my, you know, my partner loves them. So we get the anxiety ones for me. But like if I put some of the uh, of the CBD keef from uh, from Sunset Lake on there, it's awesome. It's first time I've ever had any like CBD keef before and it's great. I just mix it up in there and. Ah, makes it a, a pleasant ride for me, you know? Um, so that's what that's my new favorite, but always the gummies. And I need to get some more of those actually because I'm going on a trip. So we need oh, to like
0: yeah. have
3: them with us uh, exactly. on the trip.
0: <laughs> the gummies are amazing. Um, the problem is I'll eat like six at once and I'll just be like,
3: yeah, you got to get some, like, Sour Patch Kids to, like, even it out, you know, just like, all right, I you know. have your one, and then when you get the munchies from, you know, whatever else, you know. I'm they, not
0: good they, with, like, anything edible at all. I'm just yeah, like. Well,
3: they taste, they taste really good. So the problem? It's problem. Hard, hard not to munch on those. I'm
0: like, you got to make them a little bit more sour, guys, like a little more <laughs> CBD flavor so I don't keep eating them. <laughs> yeah,
3: no, it's I, great. <laughs> that'll make it that'll make them just like even better for me i like the, i like like the extra sour candy so uh, oh, i don't no. think we can win just like gotta be gotta gotta get some sour patch kids to like if they uh, start making bread
0: out. man if they make tortillas that's gonna be the end of me I, like that's my if, if there's like comfort food that's it for me <laughs> it's like just a really good like cuban bread like eating the inside just put some no that's
3: the punch, that was the test and we failed the
0: fudge definitely i feel that one <laughs> not only that i was like it was very strange because i got a sugar high right away and then it just mellowed out it's like <laughs> yeah i
3: can't resist
0: um anyways thank you dorsey for sharing your cbd experience i did eat some of the fudge on air and i think you caught me halfway through the show getting really chill
3: hey i after- had a gummy right before we went on air so everything's okay. cool
0: I did not yet. I'm going to wait till afterwards. All right, guys, go check out Sunset Lake CBD. You can get a discount of 20% off when you enter the promo code NOMI, N O M I, off of your entire order. 20% off at sunsetlakecbd.com. Promo code NOMI, 20% off at sunsetlakecbd.com. We will be right back with our fabulous panel. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Here we are. Sometimes Zoom gets glitchy. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Of course, Jordan Zacharin is here joining us. It is Wednesday. He runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Go check it out. It's awesome. He's, uh, he's, he's given you the, it's a political newsletter that has literally raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for progressive candidates and causes. I love that. I love that there's like, that's the business model behind it, just as a side note. Uh, Simon Rode. Was a former organizer for is a former organizer for Bernie Sanders twenty twenty. He's a socialist writer and he is a producer here at the Nomi Key Show. Hey guys, thanks for joining us.
4: Hello, thanks. Hey. For hey.
0: Let's start with the juicy stuff, right? Okay, uh, I Matt Gates, uh, who earlier this year, if we recall, uh, was or last year I should say, was called out for his adopted son who he didn't actually legally adopt i guess who's part of the family i don't really understand uh matt gates is being investigated for sex trafficking of a minor Hmm, interesting this comes out yesterday in the new york times they broke this big story well kevin mccarthy is pushing away any talk of the matt gates allegations of course matt gates is a congressman uh from florida So let's roll that clip of Kevin McCarthy. The New York Times story that I read, I haven't been able to talk to Mr. Gates yet. Mr. Gates denies the story, but I look forward to talking to Mr. Gates. Uh, I haven't heard anything from the DOJ or others, but I will deal with it um, if any of it comes to be true. Should he remain in his speech? Congressman Gates goes on Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson says it's one of the most baffling interviews he's ever, uh, you know, that he's ever conducted, uh, where Matt Gates comes out and he says that he is being smeared, he's being set up. But I, I'm going to get to a little, like, part of the story where he was, like, really sneaky. He says that there's somebody in the Department of Justice in um, Florida who was essentially trying to extort his father to get money to try to cover up that investigation. So he doesn't deny that he was being investigated for this. He just suddenly this is a very Roger Stone-esque, right? He wants to change the sub- subject to something, I have no idea if it's true or not, that he was being extorted by this DOJ official in Florida for money and they were gonna try to basically like work the system to cover up uh, the investigation. But bottom line here in the court of law, there's an investigation for human trafficking. Jordan, what are your thoughts on this crazy story?
5: Well, um, I think I know why he's so concerned about the border. He just, with all these kids coming over, he can't date them all. That's why he's worried about people coming in. Um, it's, well, I guess what's Where's shocking- our,
0: We need sound, like, <laughs> but on bumps.
5: <laughs> um, I, none of it's surprising to me. You know, when you mentioned his his adopted son, Nestor, he was 12 when Matt, uh, Congressman Gates, adopted him. And Nestor was the younger brother of the girlfriend Matt had at the time. And Matt was 31. I don't know how old this girlfriend was, but, you know, he's been doing this for a very long time. Um, I don't know if it was sex trafficking at the time, but like, he really likes younger women. He really likes to, and he admits it. He said in the New York Times story, he said, someone's just trying to like take advantage of my generosity. Yeah. I can buy plane tickets. I can buy hotel rooms. He said it in his Tucker Carlson interview too. He doesn't deny any of it. He was like, Uh, You know, you can buy hotel rooms, you can pay for, you can pay for flights, you can do all that when they're of legal age, of course. (laughs) You know, he's like really laying it on thick. Um, So he's a creep. Apparently he was, you know, talking about resigning. Axios had a story about that before, like hours before this happened. Um, And what's remarkable is that the child sex trafficking thing is, you know, the big headline. It's gross. It's disgusting. He also is under, invest- you know, part of this investigation for Florida donors and Florida, you know, just remarkably corrupt Florida business people who he is in bed with, who give him a lot of money. He got in trouble last year for renting offices from a big donor who donated $200,000 to his campaign. This guy's now under investigation. Another guy who's under investigation, he's got the child sex trafficking thing, you know, dating a 17-year-old might be the least of his worries. You know, this guy could go to jail for lots of other things, and that's what's remarkable.
0: Simon, it's just like, when these stories come out, as I'm, I'm going to speak as a woman, I just like it blow. This is just, like such a patriarchy thing to me, because like, uh, you know, th- the amount women like a woman will be canceled in Congress for like showing up with the wrong you know, outfit on and, 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 and this ecosystem perpetual. I mean, how does this not get checked? How does, I mean, clearly people around him knew what was going on clearly. Like you have to, when you become a Congressman, you have to go through ethics training and he still thinks he can get away with this. Like what the f- thing? Huh.
4: <laughs> yeah. I think you're absolutely right. But touching on the sort of the patriarchy aspect of it, there's, I feel like there have been, I'm going to, I feel silly. I don't like have like example. It wasn't there. This congresswoman in yeah. California who ended up having to like resign because of Katie it, like... Hill. Yep. Yes, Katie Hill. That's a example. Like, right? Yeah. Right. Whereas like here, Matt Gates is. This is nothing even really super new for Matt Gates. I think it was 2017 that he was like the only vote in all of Congress against this anti-human trafficking bill. Right. So this is like, this is now coming out about him, an investigation which also began under the Trump administration is um, not super surprising. And I think, I think totally believable and yeah.
0: Okay, but I, I, I don't have the clip of Tucker Carlson right now, but uh, I do wanna to touch on the fact that Tucker Carlson in the middle of the interview, he kept trying to distance himself from Matt Gates. Matt Gates was like, "You know, Tucker, remember that time we had dinner? It was your wife and me, and and I brought ah. this woman." And he's like, "He's like, I actually, I just Excuse want to me. make it for. It. I don't recall that at all, and I don't know who that woman is." <laughs> that that,
5: <laughs> that inscrutable look. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. These guys exist in such a disgusting ecosystem, and they all think they can get away with it. And they're all so interconnected. You know, the fact that imagine just being at a restaurant and seeing Matt Gates and Tucker Carlson together. Uh, even without the teenage girls that they're hanging out with, just imagine seeing them together. And like, again, like you said, it's so out in the open all the time. And the fact is like it takes an FBI investigation for anyone to say anything, you know, people saw these people together all the time. And, you know, like Simon said, you know, it's, it's such a double standard. Like you said that as well. And this stuff just gets looked over. I mean, we even see it here in New York, right. All those, you know, all the years of harassment, finally it's coming out, but this stuff just, is considered normal i guess you can have a 38 year old congressman dating as he makes sort of make clear on tucker carlson of legal age 17 year olds you know it's it's I legal in florida knows. yeah i mean i feel like if it's legal in florida it doesn't really count for anything anywhere else <laughs> but
4: um yeah god yeah, it's just everywhere really he really tried to like um implicate tucker carlson in this whole thing on that interview and
0: oh and I just, Such a strange choice. Such a strange the choice.
4: The FBI's got to be following up on that, right? Like they're gonna want to find out who, who was the restaurant. Guys, yeah.
0: What if Tucker Carlson goes down because somehow he's tied into this? Hey, Best turn of events.
5: <laughs> I will. Say, I will say that is the New Yorker up and you know dying for Andrew Cuomo to resign. And he's refusing to do so, but I don't know what can touch Republicans or make them leave at this at, at this point. You know, they've seen they've seen the example Trump sets where he just says, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do anything about it. And while Trump is different, like he can't for some reason get in trouble for anything. Um, and all the other Republicans well, are getting caught doing stuff. I mean, you know, he's Trump otherwise would have been in jail a long time ago if he had been anyone but Donald Trump. Um,
6: well, they as we're just...
0: sitting on air. Uh, New York prosecutors subpoenaed a Trump uh, Trump insider's bank records and an apparent bid to gain his cooperation in their inquiry into the former president. So, you know, we'll see.
4: Yeah, he's got a lot of lawsuits and things he's dealing with yeah. right now.
0: Yeah, he's going to have to sell his uh, his Laura Trump's Fox News deal uh, to pay for his legal bills. All right, let's let's move on from this ridiculousness. Um, OK, so so. We're in the process right now of witnessing the murder trial of George Floyd uh, against uh, Eric Chauvin, the, the officer who, Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd. And the testimony has been. Not surprising, but extremely emotional. And, and, and I mean, it shouldn't be revealing be- at this point because we're fairly familiar with how often this happens and, and under what circumstances. But, you know, sometimes this doesn't happen um, as publicly. So uh, there was an EMT who talked about how she was prevented from helping George Floyd. Let's play that. Oh, God, this is so- There was a man being killed, and I... Would have had I had, had access to a a call similar to that, um, I would have been able to provide medical attention to the best of my abilities. And this human was denied that right. I mean, the testimony that prosecution has brought forward has been so eye-opening um for for those of us who have been watching and of course the defense is resting on this this uh belief that you know he was trained to do this this is part of the it's the institution's fault um meanwhile I'm pretty sure that the police union is is paying for uh, much of his legal bills most likely and protecting him um do you think this is a turning point I'll start with you simon do you think this is a turning point uh, for this country watching this trial play out, watching how defense, watching who comes forward and says this this is just not normal, um, including an EMT, including children?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the real tragic part of it is this terribly, terribly normal. Um, and that I think for a lot of people, they don't see this happening. Like these trials aren't always this high profile, but it's not the first time that a police officer is murdered. Uh an innocent black man and then um, been defended and protected by these institutions and gotten off sc- scot-free. So I think now what we're, we're seeing it uh, in a very, very public way. Um, yeah, so was, I don't
0: know. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it in a public way. I mean, the way that the conversation shifted after the uprisings and, and so many people are suddenly processing systemic inequality and processing how our police are not a white supremacy is embedded in the police force and in military. Uh, simultaneously, it has also inflamed the some of the worst, most disgusting uh, uh, elements of our society and empower them to do things like storm the Capitol. So, but, but, but with that being said, this trial, there's a conscious effort because of the public conversation to share it. and, you know, maybe, Jordan, do you think this will shift even the way police are prosecuted when they are, which is, you know, a whole other set of questions?
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, you know, I think obviously the George Floyd thing and then the other, you know, horrible murders that we saw Breonna Taylor and just the sheer number of them last year did, yeah. you know, inspire uh, a number of reforms and obviously, you know, was not the the level to which we all would have hoped and fought for. But, you know, in New York this past week, uh, you know, there's the end of week the end of qualified immunity for police officers. And so there's no longer, no longer going to be protection from lawsuits for police officers because when they do brutal things, which is not unusual here in New York, uh, you know, it's happening in New Mexico, the governor is going to sign the end of qualified immunity. And so obviously that's not going to stop police officers necessarily from, you know, taking racist action, but I think it will make them think twice, they're no longer protected, they no longer have, you know, they no longer have uh, people paying their bills, you know, they can't just go do what they want. And so, you know, watching this stuff is heartbreaking. One of the jurors had, you know, a emotional breakdown in episode two to leave. And the stuff that's coming out here is just, you know, talking about George Floyd. You know, it was a twenty-dollar bill, right? And you know, he, the guy said that the guy, the cashier, said he may not even known it was fake. You know, it was, it, it was awful. And the, and so, you know, we talk, see the little girl talking about it as well. So I think that there's no world in which people watching this are not going to come away disgusted by what the police do. And I think that hopefully that only continues to fuel the changes that are we are now seeing to start happening in the legal system.
0: And it's also brushed up against a week um, in which there were two mass shootings, one in which a sheriff, as we all know, in, in Atlanta uh, was essentially defending the argument of the white guy who just felt you know, very sexually, like he was having a lot of sexual issues and he just had to go on a shooting spree against um, primarily uh, Asian women. <clears throat> so yeah, it's the juxtaposition, I think, is for most sane people uh, who are not embedded in the in some sort of deep white supremacy. I think there, it's, it's becoming clear, hopefully, hopefully.
4: Yeah, and the other thing is that millions and millions of Americans and just people across the world have seen the video of Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck. So it's, and we all know, like we know what murder looks like. We, we know that he's guilty. And so if he's not found um, completely guilty in this trial, then that, like you said, could be like a a moment where things really change.
0: Well, it's so just disgusting, to bring it back to New York for a second, is we all, millions and millions of people also saw, not as many probably, um, Eric Garner, and that chokehold, and I can't breathe. And our democratic mayor, our progressive mayor, was still afraid of the, the, the officer, uh, he he sta- i don't even think he was ever fired i know for years he wasn't fired he, st- he still might be employed with the police department I, I i it's been 6 years now 7 years maybe 6 years um and and he can't even step up to the police union uh, who are thugs frankly in new york who are who are holding the mayor and many city council members hostage uh mm. and everybody saw that so, you know, there's a point where, like, I don't know what the critical mass is for shame to work. And maybe it is starting with, qual- you know, ending qualified immunity. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's it's to make officers not feel like they're part of some brotherhood that's going to protect them and uh, their white supremacist acts. Maybe it's just that. Maybe that's enough to change the dynamics, the power dynamics. But yeah. uh, shame clearly isn't working fully.
4: It's not and and it's interesting to um you know you bring up this example from New York. we also have many examples here in Portland of the Portland Police Bureau uh, you know there have been officers who have who have killed innocent black people, uh, innocent trans people um, disabled and homeless people like and are still employed by the Portland police Bureau and a lot of the problem for that stems from the police union, which has a lot of power in the city, and also the fact that our mayor is also the um in charge of the police as well he's the police commissioner slash mayor um so th- there's and this and this is portland right like this liberal bastion yeah. in they didn't Oregon. say that in
0: portlandia when i watched portlandia that mayor did not seem like he was the police commissioner no
4: no <laughs> portlandia really didn't touch on the like legacy of white supremacy in the city and, and how it's not just a legacy but it is actively reinforced yeah.
5: you know it, and part of the problem is so we're seeing in new york the mayoral race right there's a, pretty much all the candidates, except for a few, uh, have come out and, you know, hard talk about the NYPD, right? They've said that they're going to reform things, they're not going to be, they're not going to be beholden to them. We'll see if that actually happens, you know, when they get into office, the the New York Police Department, and, you know, I think probably across the country, they do these slowdowns, right, where they stop, you know, stop ticketing, and they stop getting involved in things, and make people want the police again. So I think it's, I think it's a matter of like how you train people, the people that do go become police officers. And like, it's a culture thing too. It's, you can't just impose penalties uh, if you if you don't change the culture because that's gonna, you know, nothing's gonna change really.
0: I mean, it's, it's probably gonna have to happen at the state level where, uh, they're going to have to, at least in New York, um, take more action because the cities are completely. The, the Democratic lawmakers in the cities are completely beholden to real estate and to uh, police unions, and by the way, they're they're intertwined. There's a relationship there um, to protect property, a legacy of slavery. So. So I do wanna shift gears just a little bit. We're gonna stay on New York uh, because yesterday some very big news happened after years and years. Uh, senator Liz Krueger of New York, she is a very independent minded reform thinking senator who represents parts of Manhattan, um, East side, Upper East Side uh, and Midtown. She uh, has been fighting for the legalization of marijuana for a very long time. And uh, while on one hand, Andrew Cuomo is in some hot water, it happened at the time of the budget. And so he's up against the wall. I mean, the walls are caving in around him and things that he had said he was for, but kind of like ran away from. And then, you know, legalizing marijuana, medical marijuana has been legal in New York for a few years, but it's been extremely hard like to qualify for. I mean, I think I know like one person and the circumstances that person had was under to receive medical marijuana was it was too much for somebody who was dying of cancer. Let's just say it that way. Um, it's cruel, it's cruel and unusual punishment. So, yesterday, Marijuana was legalized in New York. This is a criminal justice issue. This is something that's long overdue. Uh, just a reminder to folks, the Democrats now control the Senate, which was a big fight with Governor Cuomo because he uh, was the architect behind this thing called the Independent Democratic Conference, which were eight Democrats that were caucusing with Republicans holding up all legislation so that Andrew Cuomo did not have to veto progressive legislation. Well, he doesn't have that anymore. And so he's been doing all he can to, to maneuver and control the Senate. Let's play Senator Liz Krueger's comments.
6: The bill we have held out for in this state will create a nation-leading model for legalization. New York's program will not just talk the talk on racial justice, it will walk the walk, ending racially disparate enforcement that was endemic to prohibition, automatically expunging the records of those who were caught up in the so-called war on drugs, and channeling 40% of the revenue back into the most hard-hit communities and 20% of the revenue into treatment for more serious drug addictions and then another 40% into education again in the communities that need it most. Not to mention building a multi-billion dollar industry for New York that encourages small businesses while balancing safety with economic growth.
0: I'm going to go to Jordan first because you're familiar with this bill and you live in New York. Um, Yeah. There are a lot of uh, marijuana legalization bills out there that pass uh, that are good, but there is a, there's a marijuana uh, industrial complex, cannabis industrial complex that has taken over this country and big business comes in and uh, takes advantage and, and, and the, the folks, you know, who, whose communities have been wrecked as a result of the criminal justice system and the crime bill um, and the wars of, of the early 80s, of course, are not able to profit off of these new bills. How does this bill, from from your first look, si- like, size up compared to some of these other bills across the country that have passed?
5: Well, first, I want to give a shout out to Senator Kruger. She's my state senator. Um, Lucky you. And well, the thing is, you know, I don't think that, I mean, I think it's a pretty progressive bill, all things considered trying to get it signed by Cuomo. And she doesn't really represent districts that probably have people who have difficulty getting weed right now, or would be arrested for having that weed. And so I, you know, give her a shout out for fighting for things that, you know, when you're a representative, you want to help the whole state, but you're all, you're also kind of enthralled to your, your own district. And so I think that that alone is impressive and it's good. I think that, you know, they're getting rid of, you know, they're going to, you know, uh, get rid of a lot of criminal sentences and expunge records. I think that's really important. And like you said, there's a definitely a, uh, industrial complex in New York. They've been pressuring for years to try and get, you know, weed everywhere. Um, it'll take a little while to set up shops and, you know, license, p- license people. But the fact that they're investing so much in communities that have been, you know, wrecked by these things are really important. You look at like so much of Brooklyn and so much of Queens and the Bronx, just for so many years, just, you know, I just constant arrests and constant, you know, st- Wreckage. I saw a stat that said yesterday, last year, I think if I'm correct, 94% of people in New York who were arrested for marijuana possession were black. Uh, if you are uh, black, you're 2.5 times likelier to be arrested or cited for having weed than if you're white. And, you know, this is obviously it's ridiculous. And the fact that they're investing in these neighborhoods and helping people, there's going to be home growth. Uh, people can grow at home as well. And so I think, you know, that sort of stuff is not just. You know, lining the pockets of people that open up big storefronts that you know have weed shipped in from California or wherever. So I think you know it's it's a nice big step, and I'm I'm impressed.
0: I mean, it's well overdue. Um, you know, it's it's interesting just to, to remind folks, De Blasio ended the stop and frisk policy. Stop and frisk was a Bloomberg era policy, which <laughs> which statistically, of course, targeted uh, communities of color and gave police uh, the free ability to just stop a person based on whatever the hell they wanted to stop them for. And of course, uh, fueling the, the, this injustice in, in the city. I mean, it's really grotesque. I mean, we complain about de Blasio all the time, but like, let's remember what Bloomberg did to our city, to, to New York. Let's remember what, uh, Giuliani did to New York. Let's remember what Koch did to New York in terms of zoning and, and pushing neighborhoods, you know, up against each other. And yeah, Times Square doesn't have sex shops anymore, but like, <laughs> <laughs> it ain't pretty. <laughs> All the right, el- Simon, the sorry. The dystopia. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's not a community development. So, Simon, um, you live in Oregon. Mm-hmm. You got you got some legal stuff there that just passed. <laughs> 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 Mushrooms are now legal in Oregon, right?
4: Right, yeah. And we've had <laughs> cannabis legalized for, for some time now. Um, and, you know, People are doing it and, and no, no like terrible consequences of it. I think apart from um, as you both noted that um, a lot of the time people who tend to profit from the legalization of cannabis are just like you know white affluent business owners who can um, you know who have the resources already to like start a cannabis business and, and make it successful. Um, and you know that is the same problem here in Oregon so. I'm
0: curious, know. has has the given our conversation about the police, um, how have you witnessed or read anything about the the shift in their priorities of because like they gotta arrest people, it's the, that's what they love to do is just you know target and arrest people for whatever. Is there a shift now?
4: In what they're arresting people for? Yeah.
0: I mean, so much of their jobs over the last 35 years has been around. Uh, arresting people of color for nonviolent offenses, for drug, you know, whatever they think is 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 related to, to drug uh, possession or use? Or I mean, it depends on where you live, but are you seeing, like, w- what are they filling up the jails with right now? Where are they making their money?
4: Um, that's, you know, a really great question. I don't know, um, you know, what the police ha- have been using as, like, justification for their violence, um, but I think that it's really they never really have needed um, an excuse to do uh, violence against people here in Portland. so um, there there was like this big lawsuit um, several years ago where you know uh, Portland police officers were disproportionately um, like hurting people who have um, mental disabilities, um, and then also, um, the homeless population. We have like a lot of homeless people here in Portland um, who have been really harmed by police, and so the, the problem persists. Uh, I don't know exactly what the um, what you know what they're charging people with specifically, but um, you know, like they like they uh, you know like they arrested how many people over the summer um, for really nothing. Like yeah. I you know I was arrested for just standing in the street. With some people chanting, chanting George Floyd's name, and then they asked us to leave, and um, and then we did leave. Well, it's a uh,
0: loophole in the law, but you can't—you know—they can't just walk up to people on the street now. Uh, I'm not saying that there was stopping for a clear. I have no idea, but you know, these are the, the bottom line is these things. These these laws have major implications and impacts on communities, and if they're designed the way that Senator Kruger's law was, in, in terms of investing in communities um, with the revenue that is generated, that's fantastic to do. Even the smallest bit of work to uh, give back uh, for the damage that was 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 pushed on communities, but simultaneously in New York there is all this other criminal justice reform that's happening. Um, the efforts to close Rikers, what that happens. Rikers Island is a is a jail in which um, you know many people go. Uh, in, in New York City and, and stay and can't get out. There's um, ending cash bail. Uh, there's a question about what happens when we qu- close these jails. These are big debates that are happening in New York now that have been well overdue. Um, and we might see this as sort of like the, at least in New York State, I can only speak to this, um, an era where criminal justice is, is, is really transformed. It's like a progressive criminal justice, you know, re- re- not reformed, but transformed criminal justice era. So final thoughts guys, Jordan? Um, well
5: I guess I can get high now. Uh, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for years so I can finally try weed. And so I'm gonna go enjoy <laughs> that now. Enjoy it. Yeah. Wait, when is it like. actually when is it I think through? it's I think it's now like once it's signed, it won't be legal. I don't think you can go like to like yeah. Walgreens and buy it, but I think that you're I don't think you'll be able to arrest be arrested for it. Um, we'll yeah. see when they start instituting you know all the storefronts and whatnot because it's-
0: It's still illegal though, Jordan, because it's federally illegal. So be careful what you say on federal. That's why I didn't
5: get the job at the White House, I think.
0: (laughs) I know someone who, before this broke, I don't know if I could say this, before this broke, someone I know did not get a job because they asked him, have you ever smoked weed? And because he's a human that lives in 2021, (laughs) he was like, yes. And they told him he couldn't get the job. And then the story broke a few weeks later. I was like, what the hell? Man.
4: They need to get some weed for the dog. How did our vice president get the job when she admitted to smoking weed?
0: Different standards. That's how hierarchy works. Well, she
4: became a cop though, so it's okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> On that note, all right, guys. I'm going to go get some CBD. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Sunset Lake, yeah.
0: Sunsetlakecbd.com, 20% off your order. Don't drive them out of business. I love CBD too because, you know, when I do do other things, I can't fully focus. I'm not able to like do my work. So CBD is great because it prevents me from drinking two glasses of wine and not being able to write or other things and not being able to write. Um, and it like settles the nerves a little bit. So sunsetlakecbd.com. <laughs> Jordan and Simon Road, love you guys. Thanks for joining us on Wednesdays. Yeah. We will see you soonish, uh, as you guys know. Thank you. SunsetLakeCBD.com, 20% off your order. Go to sunsetlakecBD.com. <laughs> Type in Nomi, N O M I. All right, let's do some shout outs. S Scout is taken. Well, was that like, was I asking if you were taken? I guess that's S Scout's title. Um, <laughs> Nomi Cons can we steal your guest for the David Feldman show? Which guest? Oh, our main guest? I mean, I, I don't own him. You could reach out to him if you want. <laughs> Tony Rizzo, thank you for the love. Shout out to United Fort Worth, an awesome multiracial grassroots organization started in 2017 to fight racist show me your papers legislation and continuing to do great work today. Check them out on Facebook and on Instagram. Love it. Go check out United Fort Worth doing great uh, work In terms of the Show Me Your Papers legislation, amazing multiracial grassroots community org that actively works to challenge discriminatory policy and systems of oppression while empowering Black, Latinx and other historically marginalized communities to join the fight for justice through collective action. Love it. All right. Ian Kinzel says, thank you for the love, Ian. Funny how the media makes a big deal about Biden's massively expensive infrastructure plan, but ignores our massively screwed up infrastructure. I know. I agree. It's like saying, oh my God, my air conditioning isn't working and it's 120 degrees outside. Oh, but like there's only one air conditioning available and it's, you know, $1,050 and I make $2 billion a year and (laughs) I can't have, oh, it's just such an expensive air conditioning. Meanwhile, you're sweating. That would never happen. You guys know it. All right, Harvey K., we know you're in there. Thanks for uh, mixing up the live chat and everybody else in the live chats right now, as always. Thank you. MidiDocs and Mario, we are so appreciative to you for working those algorithms. And our moderators on YouTube, Bob C., Choken, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel. Thank you. Always appreciative. And over on Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nug Wrangler, Our Means, and... Okay, we know you are human beings on Twitch, and we are so appreciative to you for keeping our chat rooms troll-free. But Dorsey has like a different type of love for Nightbot, which we know is not a human being. I've I got a bunch of messages from people like on Instagram and things so like, "We love you," but like Nightbot's not real. And I'm like, I know it's it's a joke between Dorsey and me, so I'm gonna put Nightbot in a s- separate category. <laughs> So we don't compare, but thank you to everybody. Remember, stay in solidarity, be kind to each other, and we will see you mañana.